Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, the ripoff podcast within a podcast that now is a spinoff podcast, where I ask Sam questions about episodes of Star Trek that we watched this week. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Hello. This week, we are talking about two episodes from season three, Day of the Dove and For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. The world is hollow, and all I got was this t-shirt. Wait, I have another one. Or if you're an X fan, the world is hollow, it's in my kiss. All right, let's start off with Day of the Dove since that comes first. So Day of the Dove was written by Jerome Bixby, who those of you who have watched the original series will recognize that name, and directed by Marvin Chomsky, who directed one of the episodes we talked about last week. This episode was first broadcast November 1st, 1968. It is the seventh episode of season three. When responding to a distress call, Kirk finds a human colony that has apparently been wiped out by a ship of Klingons, who claim that they were also attacked when responding to a distress call. Kirk takes the Klingons prisoner, but the usual animosity between the Federation officers and the Klingons seems much more heightened than usual. When they find themselves mysteriously trapped aboard the Enterprise together, A conflict seems inevitable. Sam, what were your first thoughts on this episode? So this episode is if the mutually assured destruction device in Dr. Strangelove was a malicious demon alien spirit thing. That's what this is. This is... Why are you fighting? You shouldn't be fighting. We shouldn't be fighting. We don't even remember what we're fighting about anymore. But if not, there's a red menace that will eat both of our lunches. Oh, wait, is this about China? That was my other question. Is this more about the Cold War? Like the conflict between Russia and the U.S.? Is it about Vietnam? Like what's what's the subtext that you got off of this? I mean, everything after World War II is nominally about the Cold War because, you know, Vietnam and Afghanistan primarily are fights that are essentially proxy wars. I guess Korea, too, proxy wars between quote-unquote democracy and quote-unquote communism. And that's, of course, the basis of the Cold War. So this is a Cold War allegory where the folks at Star Trek are basically saying that we can have ideological differences, we can have nationalistic differences, but they shouldn't bring us back to our most primal sense to hurt each other, which is, you know, of course, the big thing that the alien does is cause you to revert to your most primal instinct. Which is a conclusion that they jump to, that that's man's most primal instinct. I think that's a little bit problematic, but it is certainly about the Cold War. And it's only about Vietnam in that Vietnam is also about the Cold War, but not in the direct way that we often talk about it. This is is not that. This is 100% Cold War. All right, let's talk a little bit about the blackface in the room. I found this episode to be really interesting, but the Klingons have always been really problematic in the original series. Obviously, they change a lot between the original series and Next Generation. You can say that some of the other Klingon appearances are yellow face, which is pretty bad. This seems like straight up blackface. So that adds kind of a racial component to this Cold War. 
analog that we're getting here, analogy that we're getting here. And when you talked about like the basest primal instincts here, Scotty straight up says some pretty racist things to Spock. Like there's some, there's definitely also a racism undercurrent here, even though we have white actors who are playing Klingons in blackface. What were your reactions to that? Yeah, I was confused about that for a little bit. And I mean, I think that's giving Star Trek a lot of credit for actually thinking about these things. And I don't know that we can really say that they thought about them that much. I mean, this looks more like brown face than it does yellow face if we're just talking about literal color. I thought about this a bit. And again, this is giving credit, you know, like credit for something they did that was wrong. But this is giving them credit where maybe credit isn't earned like maybe they didn't do it on purpose but i immediately thought about what if we're trying to do some kind of asian discourse with like you because know, there is a discourse in in some asian cultures about the color of one's skin thinking about um mongolia the the area of russia that borders mongolia which is what came to mind you could talk about the the issue of is India actually in Asia, the Middle East? I mean, so there's a lot of different things that are happening here. I don't know that Star Trek is actually doing anything on purpose here. I'm not sure that there's any thought here. The the bottom line is that they're othering the the Klingons and and they're doing so perhaps instead of trying to specify any particular culture, just going, they're not white. They're not white. They're not us. I think maybe that's just the goal here, which is bad. But then again, this is the same show that did the half white, half black face person. I know I haven't seen it yet, but I know it exists. So I know that these people are like super nuanced when it comes to like painting people's faces, like just super nuanced. So I tried to figure it out and that's the best I have. What do you think about... So obviously, all of the characters are acting a lot more aggressively. We get Chekhov, who apparently has made up an entire backstory that is not true about a brother who was killed by the Klingons. Is the being, the alien being who is feeding off of all this, manipulating him? Did he put that backstory in his head? Is it just like the result of heightened emotions? I don't know. What do you think about Chekhov's storyline and the fact that he tries to commit a sexual assault against... The female Klingon, the first officer. So I'm obviously not a Star Trek expert, nor am I an expert on mid to late 20th century history, especially the history of the Cold War. I know some things about both, and I know more about the Cold War than I do about Star Trek. If you think back in terms of the Red Scare, so McCarthyism, the Rosenberg execution, stuff like that, which is not that far out of popular culture consciousness in the late 60s. I mean, you still have, you know, the Hollywood 10. You still have several people who have been blacklisted and have yet to recover. So this is Red Scare paranoia, this this devolving into primalism, which I have a problem with. but. The whole idea that communists are going to come and, like, sacrifice your babies and drink their blood, they're going to rape your women, they're going to do all this stuff, that's not, I mean, that's not what 
communists do. They're actually just probably, from what we know about history, trying to keep themselves fed and like not freeze to death. So they don't really have time to think about terrorizing your families. However, folks in the U.S. government did have time to put those ideas in people's heads. And so I think that's what's being replicated here, just this idea that, you know, these these people artificially implanting the ideas that this group of others are trying to kill you and, you know, as I said, assault your women folk. And that's definitely what this thing is trying to do to both the folks on the Enterprise and the, the Klingons. Yeah, we see that also from the Klingons as well, who have had all this propaganda given to them about how terrible the Federation people are, too. So we do see it from both sides. I want to quickly revisit this alien who feeds on hatred and fear. If if the Klingons are supposed to be like the Russia communist analog and the Federation is supposed to be like the U.S. or Europe, you know, like the Western powers, as in, insofar as Western as a concept isn't also created, what is this? alien being supposed to be is star trek star trek is clearly saying something that is anti-cold war it's anti-paranoia but what is it trying to say is the being an analog for government is it an analog for corporations what are we thinking here if it's an analog for anything it's the propaganda machines that are being operated by the u.s and the soviet governments uh, and but but this is also happening in the soviet union i mean this is this is you know, the, the, I'm going to get it right, wrong, but the apparatchik, whatever it is, the, the, the folks who are doing the propaganda, you know, we, we know that this is McCarthyism, but both sides are doing this to each other. And well, they're not really doing it to each other. That's kind of the point. They're doing it to their own people. These are, uh, you know, the, the enterprise, the people on the enterprise are stand-ins for just the everyday person, the everyday American. And then the the Klingons are just the everyday representative of the other, in this case, Russians. And and it, like I said, so if there's a direct analog, this this hate thing that fills feeds off of hate, are these people who have either been elected or not, but have seized power and are trying to get the people to play their stupid games because their stupid prizes are power. So I, you know, that's it. And then finally, I mentioned earlier, Scotty is pretty racist to Spock when he devolves into like his more primal instincts, right? He says some things to Spock that are very racialized about him being a Vulcan, about him not feeling anything, about not being a man. And Kirk actually says a couple of things, too, before he's like, he kind of snaps himself out of it. And he's like, what are we doing? Like, this is, we're better than this. So what do you think about that moment on the bridge? So the problem with jingoism and xenophobia, right? The problem with creating this straw man other is that you create the idea of a straw man slash other. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. And we've seen it play out over and over in history. You, you look at the history of American racism, if not the history of all racism against black people, and it is that same straw man thing. Like, they ruined everything. In fact, we can bring it all the way back to a biblical 
this is literally the person who ruined everything. And this is the line that they've come down from. This is something that was done, you know, a few hundred years ago. And and one of the things that comes out of the Red Scare, which is a movement of be afraid of the Russians, we get people like the Rosenbergs who get put to death for no good reason because they weren't involved. But that's what happens when you teach people to fear and be afraid of and act against a certain group of other people, what people learn is that you should be afraid and act against other people. And it becomes super easy to to have that put on to another group of people. And if you look about where we are right now, duh. You know, it's it's no longer looking at the outward evil, if that ever existed. It's now turning on each other. And that's what this episode does a really good job of, is showing that we are just so close to doing that because we've been conditioned to think that that's, you know, there's always got to be an adversarial relationship. And so I, I do take issue with Star Trek's assertion that that's our most base, most primal condition. I don't think it is. I think that's what you've been taught to believe. And we're seeing that teaching being taken advantage of and then spinning out of control in these moments. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure we've really talked about this as much because it hasn't been explained in the lore of Star Trek that you've seen so far, but Spock is also affected, right? Like, even though he's a Vulcan, he's less affected, perhaps, or less easily affected than the humans are, but he's going to kill Scotty in that moment, right? He, like, goes towards him to kill him, and that's supposed to be a reference to the fact that Vulcans have evolved from, like, a brutal emotional, violent race as well. But that just goes to show you, right? The othering and the fear of the other, as illogical as it is, tends to eventually penetrate even the most logical of people, right? Your defenses can only go so high and be so strong against the constant barrage of, of this kind of stuff, which is, again, what the you know, embodiment, even though it's not really a, a body, it's kind of more of a gaseous light <laughs> it's substance. Really just a bunch of right. But that's what's happening here. And and I do think it's really interesting. And so this is the only this is the second episode we've done of this. And and I know last week was 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 very jokey because I felt very jokey about the last two episodes. But something I've noticed, of course, over the first two seasons is that there is a balance here. There's some very uh, serious allegorical discussions that you can have alongside Star Trek's got jokes and it's campy and oh my god, Kirk's doing it again. What's interesting so far is the first two episodes were were that, whereas this is something completely different. I do think there are some episodes that are pretty good at mixing them together, but you know this one is definitely very heavy-handed, but I think it lands well. Well, here's hoping that Spock and the other members of the Enterprise, especially Chekhov, get a lot of therapy off camera. They, they talk it over, over some multicolored food cubes. You are obsessed about the multicolored food cubes of Star Trek. You and others have told me time and time again that this is a utopian future. And if this is a utopian future and our food is multicolored cubes, count me out. <laughs> That is no utopia. All right, let's move on to the second episode, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, which might be one of the best titles in, honestly, in all of television. It is the eighth episode of the third season, so right after Day of the Dove. 
It was written by Rick Volertz and directed by Tony Leader, and it was first broadcast on November 8th, 1968. The Enterprise encounters a spaceship disguised as an asteroid. When Spock, Kirk, and McCoy beam down, they discover that the inhabitants of the ship, led by a high priestess and a mysterious oracle, don't seem to realize that they are on a spaceship at all, which brings up all these questions about the Prime Directive and how much can you interfere. The asteroid is on a collision course with a Federation colony, so something has to be done, and McCoy has a terminal illness. Sam, what were your first thoughts of this episode? Do you remember what I said before it was revealed what was happening? Do you remember? No. So, you Star Trek people, Trekkies, Trekkers, follower of the Picard, whatever the hell you call yourselves, you like to, like, Push up your hipster glasses and talk about how pedestrian Star Wars is. I never do that. You're one of the good ones. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, anyway, so I clearly grew up a Star Wars person, but Star Wars taught me everything I needed to know about this episode because the very first time I saw that asteroid, I said to you, that's no moon, it's a space station. And guess what? I was right. (laughs) Take that. And the emotional stakes are set pretty high in the cold open of this because we get McCoy telling Kirk that he has a terminal illness. He has only one year to live. What did you think about the McCoy illness? I don't even remember what it's called in this episode. This is roughly 30 something years before we actually just shockingly killed off the main character. So, yeah, no, he's going to be fine by the end of the episode. That's what I thought, the end. But what did you think of, I mean, he's very emotional about it. Like, this whole episode is about him trying to figure out what to do with the time he has left. Did you find that at all compelling? No, because we have moved on. That story does not resonate anymore. And that's sad in some ways, but TV, pop culture, has taught me Not to, no, he'll either die or he won't. And that's just, I don't know which one. So I'm not going to get invested. I'm not going to get emotional about it. That That is one of the things that TV has done in the past, you know, two to three decades is, is kind of recalibrated how we read pop culture in some ways that aren't really good, but Spock showing genuine emotion genuine sadness about the prospect of losing McCoy when he puts his hand on McCoy in that moment you know McCoy looks at Kirk and he's like yeah he knows and it's like that's all he's never gonna say anything but like he actually felt something okay so that got through that was the most meaningful part of that entire plot is giving Spock that that emotional moment that's it Yeah, Spock and McCoy have a very different relationship than Spock and Kirk, for an example, or even McCoy and Kirk. And I I find that that is one of the most fascinating parts of the triad, I think, is the idea that Spock will tell Kirk that he cares about him, but he won't tell McCoy. Like, they don't have that relationship, but there are moments like this that show that they actually very deeply care about each other, even though they're both kind of grumpy about it. Yeah, something else that I told you while we were watching this episode, because you're like, eh, eh, what do you think about that? And I told you, 
I am profoundly uninterested in the shipping of these three characters. I don't care. I recognize that it's meaningful, it's fun, it's engaging for a lot of people, but I just don't care. That doesn't mean I don't understand the concept that the three of them are in a polyamorous relationship and the primary person for both Bones and Spock is Kirk. And so they have this kind of, it's not like a true triad where each you know, side of the triangle is you know, an equal amount of, of feeling. That's certainly not it. But in this, if we're going to do this thing that I care nothing about, shows that even though they're both primarily invested in Kirk through that relationship with Kirk, they've learned to have some sort of, if not grudging, but certainly mutual affection for each other. And I profoundly don't care about this power dynamic. That doesn't mean I don't see it. (laughs) God. I mean, I I think, though, even if you're not invested in the shipping of these three characters, it is still a profound moment of at least friendship, if you're going to go with that. I have eyes. I have feelings. Speaking of romance, this is one of the very few episodes where McCoy gets a love interest. Usually it's Kirk. Sometimes it's Spock. But McCoy, I mean, I think there's only a couple of times that we really get to see McCoy have a love interest. What did you think of Natira, the high priestess of... You know, we didn't talk about the science officer in the previous episode. I just like the fact that all aliens are hot in the Star Trek universe. I mean, that's a bold move. I don't hate it. Star Trek is primarily invested in hotness. And I mean, if you're going to be invested in something, I'm okay with that. Now, what did I think about her? Well, I pretty much just told you. However, I want to point out, until somebody tells me it's not true and can canonically explain to me why, she and Bones are married. Yeah. They're married. Bones is married. And good for him. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah, they get married because he decides to stay on the asteroid with her to live out the rest of his year of life or whatever. And they get married. Like, there is a marriage ceremony. They are legally married. And there's no divorce. They just decide to separate because they both have different goals in life. So, yeah, I I don't actually know if they're still legally married or not. All right, so obviously the plot of this episode revolves around a sort of village-like construct where the people inside of these spaceship do not understand that they are in a spaceship. They think that this is the whole world. They don't completely understand where they're going or any concept of that. And they have this, like, oracle, which is really a computer, who is, like, ruling their every movement. It's actively keeping them from understanding that they are on a spaceship. It turns out that they are the last of a certain group of people or descendants of a certain group, group of people who left a dying planet, kind of like a Kryptonian situation, but they don't actually remember any of that because the Oracle has kept it from them, but they know that they're going to another world. What did you think about that whole plot line? We, we saw something the other day that discussed the idea that if the people on Krypton are so smart, how come they couldn't send but one person away from the planet? which, of course, there's actually two people because Kara gets sent, but that's neither here nor there. The problem with this society is that they figured out how to send multiple people, but they haven't figured out the suspended animation thing. Why not? Because the story won't work otherwise. 
Instead, instead of just figuring out how to do deep space sleep, they come up with this ridiculously idiotic idea in which they create a religious society based on an AI priest. I'm blinking my eyes rapidly because this is such a profoundly stupid idea. And and so in this this years upon years multi-generational thing, nobody'll ever look at the man behind the curtain and realize it's a spaceship and blah 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 because for some reason their society will be more better, you know, kept intact. And what's even worse about it is all you got to do is push three buttons at once and the book that says everything is right there. So they're going to get so like, you know, like the great, great, great grandchildren or whatever, I don't know, of the people who put them on the spaceship are going to get there. And, you know, the whole reason the episode exists is that the, that the people who designed this miraculously also managed to do a complete other mess up, which was not get their instrumentation correct. So it was going to go off. Of course, and I, of course they could because they came up with this idiotic idea to begin with. Of course their math was wrong. But anyway, see, now we're back to, now we're back to the good times on Star Trek, right? This goes, and that's why they, you know, that's why the Enterprise has to intervene. But they're going to make it to this new home planet and they're going to, and they're going to land and the mysterious God voice is going to be like, hey, guys, remember how you thought you were on it? Psych, this is a spaceship. It's all cool. Turns out your ancestors wanted to do this, and they've explained it all in this brand new book, 1,053 <laughs> Secrets that we kept from you because we thought you were too stupid to understand it, but you can understand it now that you're on a completely different planet, even though you really thought you were on a planet. This is a total Plato's cave situation. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Here's the book. Enjoy it. I understand that you're mad, but we're all dead, so you can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I especially like the taunting at the end. I feel like that that's like a perfect ending to that kind of book. Uh, How would you end it? <laughs> the one thing that I dislike about this episode is that it doesn't really invest in the interest most to me the most interesting question which is asked at the beginning of the episode does it violate the prime directive to tell these people they're on a spaceship slash alter their course is it okay to violate the prime directive if it involves the death of perhaps a federation colony do you feel like i, I don't feel like they really invested like they just decided no to hell with the prime directive and never really had much of a conversation about that what did you think about that tension at the beginning of the episode? Yeah, I know it hasn't come up in the series, but this kind of reminds me of the, um, what's it called? Uh, Dordomamu, Keshigomu, what's it Kobayashi called? Maru. <laughs> the Kobayashi Circle, right? Well, no, no, that's what it is. Maru is circle, right? That's the whole point is it's this, this whole logical conundrum, right? And I think this is very close to that in that, well, yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to like, you know, stick your nose in a situation where they haven't become self-aware yet. At least that's how I read it. To me, that's the logical undercurrent of the Prime Directive. If they are unaware, you don't mess with them. The problem is their ancestors were aware and have deliberately made their descendants unaware, which feels like dirty pool. Like, I don't think that's okay. 
And so I think from a moral and ethical standpoint, you're clear in doing what they did. And once you add on that, the extra layer of this deliberate obfuscation is going to lead to a Federation planet being taken out. Okay, so not only do you have the, these people have been tortured, which I think is a real thing you could justify, they're also endangering other people. So like, to me, it's not a logical conundrum at all. It presents itself as one, but if you unravel it, it is no longer a conundrum. And that's my guess about the Kobayashi Maru, by the way. Okay, that's it for today. Join us next time for more Sam Watches Star Trek. Next episode, we are going to discuss the Season 3 episodes, The Tholian Web, and Plato's Stepchildren. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper.